0: You know, there are uh, certain moments in life where no matter how much you prepare for it, it's still overwhelming. And um, a lot of those moments involve having a child. And one of those moments that I was probably least prepared for was the moment when the um, hospital finally releases you with your newborn baby and says, You can take your baby home now. And I remember that moment being like, You sure? Like, like, now, this little, this little baby, and you just kind of like feel like all this, like, ah, are we really ready to care for this little tiny life? And we really felt that when we brought Madeline home, actually, our third daughter, because she came home so small. Here's a little picture. Madeline was about four pounds when she came home, and like, like they're like, we entrust you with this, and you can take, uh, you can take her home. And I was like, I don't... I'm not sure if that's a good plan or not. And I remember being really nervous, but the one thing they didn't have to tell us was, hey, be really careful, right? Handle with handle with care. And one of the reasons why we knew to, or two of the reasons why we were so careful when we brought our children home was, number one, we had this realization of what a gift, right? What an amazing gift each of them was. But also we realized there's so much at stake in how we handle and care for these little girls. Now, This month of November, we're in a series, or we're starting a series called Handle with Care. And we're going to talk about, in the month of November, four Sundays, handling our time, our talent, and our treasure. And just like bringing a little child home, each of those things, time, talent, treasure, those are gifts and there's much at stake. And this morning, we're gonna start by talking about time. And there's a reason why I think the gift of time is unique from even the gifts of talents and treasures. Let me, let me give you two reasons why there's something unique about time. The first one is this. Everyone gets the same amount of time in a day, right? Doesn't matter if you're poor, if you're rich, if you're old, if you're young, if you're a man, if you're a woman, everyone in one day gets the same amount of time. You get, you get the same resource. And that's not true with talent, people have different levels of talent. That's not true with treasure. Some people have more financial, uh, uh, have more money than others. But with time, we all get the same. And the other thing that makes time, I think, a little unique compared to talent and treasure is this. Once you spend it, once you use it, you can never get it back. In his book, The Time Trap, Alec McKenzie wrote this. He said, time is a unique resource. It cannot be accumulated like money, or stockpiled like raw materials, we are forced to spend it whether we want to or not, whether we choose to or not, and at a fixed rate of 60 seconds for every minute. It cannot be turned on, and it cannot be turned off like a machine, and it cannot be replaced like a man. Here's what he said, time is irretrievable. Once you spend it, you'll never get it back. This morning, we're going to look at, uh, in the Psalms, and we're going to look at Psalm 90. If you can turn your Bibles to Psalm 90, and this is a psalm that was written by a man named Moses. Moses in the Old Testament uh, was a man that God raised up to lead the people of Israel uh, really out of Egyptian slavery into the wilderness where they became a people and eventually became a nation. And in Psalm 90, Moses is writing a psalm of lament. It's community lament related to an unspecified disaster. He's praying for God to take notice and to bless his people. And one of the things that he does in Psalm 90 is he compares the eternal, timeless nature of God is, who God is standing outside of time, eternal, with no beginning and with no end, and he compares it to humankind, our finite, fleeting lives in time. And we're gonna read beginning in verses, uh, verse 12, read verses 12 through 17 from Psalm 90. And Moses writes this, so teach us to number our days, To their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Okay, so this morning, when we talk about handling time and and being stewards of the time that God has given us, I want us to notice that there are two equal but opposite errors that people tend to make with their time. And on one hand, you have laziness, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have busyness. Okay, and we're gonna talk about both of those. And I just wanna say up front that this was not a fun message to prepare this week because as I was preparing it, I felt like I was exhibit A for all of these things. I, I, I have a tendency towards laziness. Every, like my wife knows, like my life motto has been work smart, not hard. Like if there's, if there's a quick, easy way to do it, and, and one of my daughters is taking just after me. Uh, I mean, she tries to find the quickest, fastest way to accomplish any task. And then, uh, um, but then also sometimes I allow my life, and not just my life or my schedule, but I, let, I, let, I allow my heart to be busy, to be overfilled. Uh, to be controlled by things, and so this was kind of an ouch message to prep, so if it's an ouch message to hear, just take comfort in knowing that it injured me first, and (laughs) now I will allow it to injure you. Okay, (laughs) laziness. What is, let's start by defining laziness. Laziness is not recreation, thank God. Laziness is not rest. Rest is part of God's plan. It's a very important part of God's plan, and laziness is not relaxing, it's not putting your feet up. Hopefully you got to relax at some point this weekend. Laziness is none of those things. What is laziness? Laziness is an unwillingness to work, or an unwillingness to work hard. Laziness is choosing to be selfish and wasteful with both time and opportunity. And laziness is ignoring or avoiding what we might consider to be normal responsibilities, things that we are normally responsible to do. Now, why do we find ourselves in places of laziness? I wanna give you three reasons, I think, why we end up lazy. You can fill this in in your notes if you're taking notes. First thing is this, you don't see time as a gift. If you don't see time as a gift, you might fall into the trap of laziness. You know, like when somebody lets you borrow something, And uh, let's say somebody lets you borrow a tool and somebody else says, can I use that tool? What do you tend to say? This is what I tend to say. Yeah, you can use it, but be careful because why? It's not mine. You know how sometimes, sad but true, we're more careful with other people's stuff than our own stuff? Be careful it's not mine. That's true of time. We have to be careful because ultimately it's not ours. It's a gift. And laziness says this, my time is my time and I can do whatever I want with it. My time is my time and I can waste it if I want because it's my time. But the Bible makes it clear over and over in this text and in other places that every single day is a gift a gift from God. This morning when you woke up, it's a gift from God. Now listen, I know some days, especially in the middle of winter in Syracuse, it's hard to believe that that day is a gift from God. But it is. Every day is a gift from God. In Psalm 118, 24, this famous verse that was a chorus that we used to sing many years ago, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, right? This is the day. And so many of us don't live in this day, do we? We live in our yesterdays. Or we live in our Tomorrow's, And we miss the opportunity to do what this psalm instructs us to do, which is say, God, I just want to rejoice in today because it's a gift from you. And when you realize that time is a gift, you know what it does for you? It makes you also realize there's a giver. Who's the giver of the gift? God gives us time and God cares about what we do with his gift. In other words, every moment that you're here, there's a reason for it. Every moment that you and I take another breath, it's like heaven is yelling at us, there's a reason you were given that breath. There's a work to do, there's a purpose. Time is a gift. We are to cherish it and use it well. So laziness does this. Laziness claims ownership of something that's actually on loan. Your time is on loan, but when you take ownership of it, like it's mine, then we fall into laziness. Here's another reason why we fall into laziness. Number two, you don't see work As worship. You don't see work as worship. We did a whole message on this last year on the idea of work, and it's, uh, I think, a very important message for people to hear. But let me just summarize really quick. In this passage, Moses talks about God's work. He says, Let your work be shown to your servants. And then he says, Establish the work. Of our hands. In fact, uh, he says, establish the work of our hands upon us, establish the work of our hands. He says it's twice for emphasis and also because parallelism was a Hebrew poetry device. But, but Moses is connecting God's work and our work. And Moses, who may have written Genesis, we don't know that for sure. But either way, when we look at Genesis chapter 2, we see a connection again between God's work and our work. That we were created in the image of God. And why were we created? Well, we were created to work. It says right in Genesis chapter 2 that God created man because there was no one there to work the garden, to work the ground. And so God creates Adam, creates Eve to glorify him, to bear his image, but also to do, do work well. And in the doing of our work, we actually can worship God. But for many of us, work doesn't feel meaningful. It feels mundane, mundane. It feels like it's a necessary evil. Maybe you are in a job where you think, how can I, I'm only doing this job because it pays the bills, but I don't see any way that I'm worshiping. What we just did, singing songs, that was worship, but going to work, ah, how could that possibly be worship? We reduce work to something we have to do, and we miss the connection between our everyday work and worshiping God. James M. Hamilton Jr. in his book, Work and Our Labor in the Lord, says this, work is neither punishment nor cursed drudgery, but it's an exalted, godlike activity. How does God first reveal himself in the scriptures? As a worker. If you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you'll see God is at work. He's working for the good of creation. And we've been created in his image. And one of our primary ways that we worship and glorify God is by bearing his image well. And if you're gonna bear the image of a working God, guess what that means? You gotta work. And in your work, you can worship God. You might be wondering, well, what about my work? Does my work matter? Is my work meaningful? Scott Saul says this. He says, any kind of work that leaves people, places, or things in better shape than before, any kind of work that helps the city of man become more like the city of God, where truth, beauty, goodness, order, and justice reign is work that should be celebrated as good any kind of work that leaves people, places, and things better than they were. And so work is not a necessary evil. Work is actually worship to God. And in doing our work, and in doing our work well, and doing our work in a way that develops creation and blesses others, we worship God. So whatever you're doing at work, I want to encourage you with this thought this morning. It's worship, because you were created to do work, because you were created in the image of a working God. And when we don't see work as worship, we tend to fall into laziness, like it doesn't really matter if I work. And if it does who cares if I work? Who cares if I work hard? But at the end of the day, whether it's work that you get paid to do, whether it's work you do in your house, whether it's work you do in your yard, whatever it is that you do, when you put your hand to something, when you go to work, you're actually bearing the image of God and worshiping him. Okay, and then number three, we fall into laziness when you don't see life as Mission. So tonight is dinner parties. Super excited. Many of you are connected and involved. And if you aren't yet and you're just like, man, how come I didn't sign up in the last minute? You really want to go? Let us know because not every home is filled and we could probably send you somewhere. Um, But tonight is our dinner parties and our dinner party theme. Aaron and I are hosting a dinner party and our theme is uh, like a Thanksgiving theme. And so I had one mission all week long and my mission was to cook a delicious turkey. A delicious turkey. And not overcook the white meat, right? That's the real trick with cooking a turkey. Don't overcook the white meat. No amount of gravy is going to rescue dry white meat. Don't try it. I won't be fooled. And so, like, I had this mission all week, cook the perfect turkey. Everywhere I was going, I was thinking about what I was going to do. But because that was my, I, I, I did other things too, like worked. But, but that was, like, the, the big thing. Um, because that was my mission, I had all these s- smaller objectives and goals, Right? Your objectives and your goals in life are defined by your mission. So my mission was to make a great turkey. So here's some of the objectives and goals that I fulfilled this week. I went online and I, I hunted down good recipes, right? What are, there's so many different ways, but what's a good recipe that is highly rated online? I, then, I, then I talked to my wife and we made a list of everything that I needed. Uh, and then use my Wegmans app to like plug in everything I needed. Uh, I love it because it tells you like what aisle the stuff is in. It was like made for men because we don't know where anything is. And so I just like follow the app around the store. Um, so then I go to the grocery store and I get all the things and I, and, I, and I pay for all the things. And then I get home and I prep them all. I get the turkey out and I do all these things and I, and I, I get all the vegetables and I cut them up. And then I put it all together and then I put it in the oven and just wait and cook. And let it cook and then when it comes out it's not done until you've taken a picture of it and put it on your Facebook or on Instagram right so so that's like the, that's like the final step but this was my this was my mission and because because my mission was so clear my objectives and my goals were determined for me now when I go to the grocery store without a mission it's ugly it's ugly like I'll get to the checkout line I'll be like what like I have like a block of cheese, like a pound of olives, like some chocolate bars, and a big steak. I'm like, this isn't, this isn't probably a healthy meal for me. But because I don't have a mission, I don't have clear objectives, and I, and I kind of wander around. As believers, uh, we have a mission. And when you lose sight of the fact that you have a mission, that life is actually a mission, and it's not a mission that you've defined for yourself, but it's a mission that God has defined for you. When you lose track of your mission, then your objectives and your goals get all out of sorts. So when you have no mission, you wander around, just kind of randomly doing stuff, thinking this is probably a good use of my time. This seems like an interesting use of my time, but there's no mission. Or here's what more likely happens. We have the wrong mission. We're chasing the wrong things and your mission will always determine your goals and your priorities. One of the commentaries said this, as believers, we need goals and a plan, and they should all be structured around fulfilling the mission. We need immediate short-range objectives, we need intermediate goals, but we need a long-range mission then everything we do in the use of our time, the way that we steward our time, should be structured around the mission. That includes rest, recreation, relaxation, fun, as well as work, service, and ministry. See, laziness is the enemy of ministry effectiveness and mission effectiveness. When we're lazy, we've lost sight of the mission, okay? So that's laziness. On the other end, busyness. This is where... I think we're really starting to step on toes because we're busy, aren't we? I mean, how many times have you walked into a room and you haven't seen somebody in a while and you say, hey, how how you doing? How you been? And the, the default answer in the American culture is, well, first you say, I'm doing well, I'm doing well. But then always, especially in work environments, always what? Busy. Oh, so busy. I, I, I'm just been so busy. Robert Banks, who is an Australian theologian, he said this. He said, when it comes to time, Christians are actually worse off than many. And this is the reason why. Christians and people raised in a Christian setting, they tend to take their work seriously, and they also place a high value on family obligations. Those are good things. Those are sort of like respectable idols in the Christian community. And they often are in the forefront of community and charitable associations, like serving at churches and other things. The upshot of this commitment to work, community, and family Is, as my eldest son commented, he said, Christians are like trains, always on the move, always in a rush, and always late. Busy, busy, busy. Now, let me again define busyness for what it isn't and for what it is. Busyness is not activity, it isn't. Busyness is not working hard. And busyness is not having a full life, it's none of those things. Here's what busyness is. Here's some some definitions of busyness. Busyness is an unwillingness to rest. An unwillingness to rest. Basically, you're unwilling to rest because you feel like the world won't keep rotating on its axis if you somehow don't have your arms wrapped around something. Busyness is choosing to chase after some vision of the good life by doing more and more and more and adding more things to your plate and more things to your calendar because you're pursuing something that you think is the good life. And busyness is leaving no margin in our lives for the things that matter most. Now, why are we so busy? And I'm going to give you three reasons, just like we did with laziness. The first one is this. It's the need to keep up. It's the need to keep up. I mean, we literally have a phrase in our vernacular, keeping up with the Joneses, right? What does keeping up with the Joneses mean? It means that what the people around us have, what they're doing, where they're going, we need to have, we need to do, and we need to be able to go to those places, I read a book in preparation for this message called Finding Holy in the Suburbs by Ashley Hales. And she was talking about life in the suburbs, which describes where many of you live, and some of the challenges of actually slowing down when you live in the suburbs, some of the unique challenges to living a suburb-type life. And she says this, she said, for most of us in middle-class suburban America, being busy has become a status marker. It's how we know we're important. It's how we keep up by being busy now what are some of the pressures that we have to keep up to i wrote down four pressures to keep up at work right with the demands with the competition with the expectations with the opportunities hard to say no to things when they we think that they might secure for us uh, more financial stability or they think they might they might secure for us more status and a promotion hard to say no to opportunities isn't it there's the pressure the pressure to keep up how about the pressure to keep up with neighbors and friends? Like I said, what they do, where they go, what they have, their homes, their cars, the big screen TVs, the granite countertops, all those sort of things we feel like, if they got it, I gotta keep up with it. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things, of course. But what about when we're a slave to keeping up with the people around us? How about, this is a big one for parents. I feel this all the time. Pressure to give your children all the opportunities and privileges and advantages that all the other children in their school, in their class, in their neighborhood are getting. And I feel that as a parent, if I'm honest, sometimes. I see other kids have these opportunities. And I think, am I a bad parent if I don't provide those same opportunities or that same amount of opportunities? And we become really this driven by this need to keep up. And here's another pressure, just the pressure of living up to your own internal standard, your own dreams, your own hopes. What happens is we end up looking around at what everybody else has and we covet and we compare and we're driven to keep up. President Theodore Roosevelt is famous for saying this, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. As long as we spend our lives looking around at what other people have and what we don't have, we won't experience true joy. Driven by the need to keep up, we get busy, we get enslaved, I mean it is called the rat race for a reason. We chase after it, but it's never enough, and we get super busy trying to keep up. And what if there's a better way? What if the kingdom of God has a different set of values that frees us not to be driven and enslaved to keep up, but with the opportunities to bless others? Okay, so number one, the need to keep up. Here's number two, the need to be someone. Some people are just so busy because they're trying to be someone. Uh, Moses, who wrote this psalm, Uh, Moses and the people of Israel that he was leading, one of the things that they were known for, if you read through the Old Testament, is they had this ongoing problem with worshiping the gods of other people. We would call those idols. So they would take things that were not true God, not Jehovah, and they would worship those things. But the reason why they would worship those things and when they worshiped other people's gods, it was always an identity issue because here's what they really were doing. They weren't just worshiping the gods of those people. They were taking on the identity of those peoples. So they weren't just worshiping the gods of the Assyrians. They were saying, we want to be like the Assyrians. In fact, that's why they wanted a king to begin with. When they asked for a king, uh, when they went to Samuel, the prophet, and said, give us a king, the very reason they gave was, we want to be like the other nations. And because they wanted to be someone that they weren't, it caused them to, Uh, fall into this false worship, this idolatry. In her book, Ashley Hales says this, busyness shows that we're valuable contributing members to society. So whether we can't stop checking our email, ouch, or driving our children around to every extracurricular activity in the suburbs, we've equated our busyness with value. And because our Western culture values work as an essential element of identity, we stay busy to stay valuable. And busyness becomes not just a path to getting things done, but a path to being someone. We wrap our identity up in the things that we are chasing after. We're busy feeding our idols of things like wealth, control, power, approval, achievement, and status. Why are we so busy? Why? Because very often we're trying to be someone. We're trying to bring an identity into our lives apart from who God says we are in Christ. And so while laziness robs God of worship, busyness reveals the God you worship. Laziness robs God of worship because it keeps us from doing work, which is a way to worship God, but busyness actually has a, has a much more profound thing that it can do. It will actually reveal the God that you worship. All you got to do is look at your calendar. All you really have to do is pay attention to a week of your life, and you'll know who or what you worship most. You'll know what you're trying to become. Slowing down pruning our schedules means we have to do two things. Number one, we have to decenter ourselves from our own priori- from our own like this is mine, but we also have to dethrone the false gods. Okay, last thing this morning. So we're busy because of the need to keep up, the need to be someone, and third, it's the need to stay distracted. We're busy because we like to be distracted. Judith Shulvitz, who was a New York Times op-ed writer, she wrote this. I thought this was so interesting. She said, people began to learn first from the telegraph, then from the radio, newsreels, television, and, and the internet that, listen to what she says, that what was happening now all over the globe mattered more than what was happening here. Say that again. She said, because of the internet, because of our phones, because of our access to information and social media, we've begun to learn that what's happening now all over the globe is more important than what's happening here at our dinner table, in our room. And you don't have to go very far into public to look around and see a bunch of people who have gathered together to do life together. And every single one of them has, and I've been there before, so I'm not throwing stones here. Every single one of them has their device in front of them. And why? Because what's happening somewhere else now is more important than what's happening here in this room. And we get really busy and because we want to be distracted and so we fill our lives with stuff and distractions why? I think one of the reasons why is because if we don't have to slow down and be alone with ourselves and deal with our own issues and come to grips with, you know, the things that we struggle with, so we stay really busy, we get very distracted, all because maybe it'll distract us long enough that we're never going to have to deal with me. Here's the problem, the need to stay distracted which results in busyness, does three things. Number one, it robs people of their dignity and worth. When you and I are gathered together and we're somewhere else distracted, I'm robbing you of your inherent dignity, of your worth. I'm saying, yeah, yeah, I know you're an image bearer. I know that you have value and worth, but, but this thing is more important right now than you. Number two, it robs the potential of every moment of what it could be, what those moments could be, It's being robbed of. And number three, it robs the sacredness of every space where people are together of what God wants to do there. So we're so busy to keep up, to be someone, to stay distracted. And here's the real problem. This is the last thing I want to read from Ashley's book. She says this, Busyness does not save us. It does not stave off anxiety, sadness, it does not ensure financial success. does it ensure future success for your children. It springs up, busyness springs up from a well of worry, a deep-seated feeling that we must ceaselessly work to take care of ourselves and children. What begins as a protective impulse, maybe even a healthy impulse, morphs into the tail wagging the dog. We run by our schedules, by our two-fold calendar, and extending a story of self rather than joining in rather than joining in with the story where God is already at work. When there is no space in our schedules to meet with God's people or open our homes to others, we cannot expect our deep hungers to be filled. And here's what I think she's saying. When you're overcome with laziness and when you're overcome with busyness, it actually prevents you from being fully human. Because to be fully human means to bear God's image well. God is not a lazy God, but he's also not in a hurry. He's not running around. He's not late. He's not super busy. Somehow, Jesus had a pace to his life and his ministry that was full, but not hectic. Full, but not chaotic. Why? Because he wasn't trying to be someone. He knew who he was, loved by the Father. He wasn't trying to keep up. He wasn't trying to be distracted. He was trying to be in the moment with the people that God entrusted him with, whether it was a Samaritan woman for an entire afternoon or a Jewish leader named um, Nicodemus for an entire evening. Never in a rush, always there one of my friends ministry friends Doug Fields said years ago and I never forgot this a busy life is no cure for a dry soul that's what really so much of american society is trying to cure our dry souls by having busy lives when you can't care when you're busy you can't care for others and you can't care for yourself so in closing what's the solution well let me start by saying what isn't the solution you don't want to try to be less busy by becoming more lazy <laughs> and you don't want to try to become less lazy by becoming more busy which is actually our natural tendency is to swing from one side to the other. So, what do we do? Uh, let's look at verse 14. The answer is right there. Moses says in his prayer to God God, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. The satisfaction that we're looking for in our laziness, the satisfaction that we're looking for in our busyness, it's all found in Christ. And what if every morning, this was our prayer, we wake up in the morning, and we say, God, today, satisfy my heart with your steadfast love. They can rejoice and be glad in a day, a day where maybe um, I have to say no to some things. Maybe we've had to prune back our schedule. Maybe we've had to create more margin in our lives, not define ourselves by our activities, not define ourselves by how much we get done or how involved we are. But define ourselves as the people, as you heard this morning when Ralph spoke and when Vicky spoke, you heard them say, defined by that we are loved people. We're loved people by God. Find our satisfaction in his love. Here's another way of saying this. You don't have to be busy to belong in the kingdom of God. You belong in the kingdom of God. No, God has a work for you to do but we don't define ourselves by what we do. We define ourselves by who loves us. Just before we take communion together, um, let me just share with you five practical next steps, because this is a pretty practical message this morning on stewarding time. Here's five things that I think anybody could do. I'm not saying go do them all, but maybe pick one of the five, or come up with your own. Number one, practical next step. uh, Pray through your calendar. Don't just set your calendar. Don't just fill your calendar, but pray through your calendar. And pay attention to what your calendar says about what you value. And pay attention to the margin that remains in your life to, uh, to serve your neighbors, to love people, to invite people into your life. Number two, start saying no to things on purpose. You know, I think until we're forcing ourselves to saying no to something that we want to say yes to, we're probably not being very intentional about our time. Say no to things on purpose. The truth is, is that I learned this in a book by Andy Stanley, a pastor called Choosing to Cheat. He said, everybody say, every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else, right? If I say yes to being a part of this, then I say no to all the things I could be doing during that time. So the question isn't, are you saying no? The question is, are you saying no on purpose? Are you saying no to the right things? Number three practical step, make a list of things you do and categorize them. These are the things that feed my soul and these are the things that numb my soul. These are the things that i you know, quote unquote, medicate myself with to get through the day. Pay very careful attention because that's laziness. When we turn to things, I'm not talking about just relaxing, putting your feet up, watching a show at night with your family. I'm talking about when you just need to numb your soul with hours and hours of things. Pay attention. Make a list of the things that you do that feed your soul. Prioritize that over the things that numb your soul. Number four, uh, if you, if you're married, if you have a family schedule, family dinners, protect something there, have a time. And at the family dinner table, and this is something that I have to get much better at. Don't let your phones be there, right? Phones are these constant distractions. Um, put them aside, put them in a place. Uh, if you have young children, I would encourage you don't, don't let them have their phones in their bedrooms at night. Like, have a charging station downtown, or downstairs, or downtown, that'd be safer, Uh, (laughs) downstairs uh, where they charge their phones, but they don't have them. They need a break. This generation's a lot of concerns, not just in Christian circles. There's a lot of concerns in sociologists of what's happening. What's the long-term effect on this generation? Because they're never unplugged. They're never really alone. And so, uh, really think through as a, and there's, by the way, if you're a parent and you're struggling with this, email me. There's a great book I can send you a link to, uh, that talks about how to handle social media and, and electronics with, with children. And the last one is this, number five, use a, use what I'm calling a mission filter when you look at your calendar, a mission filter. What mission does this accomplish? This objective and this goal, how does this align with the mission of God? God has a mission for you. It's the same mission that the church has. That John Bauer said earlier, the mission to make disciples for the glory of our God and the good of our community. So look at your calendar and say, how does this accomplish the mission of God? Verse 12, so teach us God to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Here's what Moses is saying. It's the last thing I'll say. If we don't get this right, we're not wise. It's a total lack of wisdom to ignore what's been said this morning. It's a total lack of wisdom to ignore what the scriptures say. It's a total lack of wisdom to just go along your day and think, this doesn't matter, I've got this nailed down. Pause and pray. At least pray, God, teach me to number my days. Teach me to pay attention to how I spend my time so I can have a heart of wisdom. Let's pray together this morning.